0: Good morning, welcome again. We are at 2 Samuel chapter 19, it's on page 271 if you're in one of the church Bibles. Uh, I didn't at all plan this, uh, but it so happens that on Palm Sunday we are at the part in 2 Samuel where David uh, enters back into Jerusalem uh, following the same path that Jesus did when he came down the Mount of Olives, um, which is really interesting. There's some parallels here. Pay attention. We'll look at some ways that David's like Jesus and some ways that he's not so much like Jesus. It's a long passage, and so I'm going to only read a little bit of it. Uh, I'm going to start at chapter 19, verse 8, and then I'll skip down to the end of the chapter. Verse 8, chapter 19. Now, Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. Saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house, when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent the word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over to the Jordan. I'm going to jump down to verse 40. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. And all the people of Judah and also half of the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers and the men of Judah stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet, and he said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we hear from your word to see uh, not just ourselves in it and the various ways that we might respond to the coming of your king, but most of all, help us to see the king himself. Help us to see Jesus, and as we see him, help us to love him and remain loyal to him, whatever it costs us. We pray in his name. Amen. I'm something of a homebody, and so the first time that I read Homer's Odyssey... I was deeply moved by its simple plot line about a man who just wants to go home. Uh, Odysseus' journey back to Ithaca is full of all kinds of dangers and disasters and distractions. Uh, there's, there's monsters, uh, there's seductresses, there's shipwrecks, there's even drugs. Uh, and to make it all worse, once he gets home he finds a bunch of guys drinking his beer and making moves on his wife. Uh, I'll leave it to you uh, to read it and find out what he does to all of them. It's a lot like a Quentin Tarantino movie. I'm sure that some of you could regale us with some stories about your own disastrous returns home. Uh, My family lived on the other side of the world with a couple of little kids, uh, and we certainly have quite a few crazy stories about trying to get home. Our passage today is about King David coming home. Uh, it's pretty much a disaster for him. He's already spent his early adult life, maybe about 15 years, fleeing from Saul. Uh, and then after that, he struggled through a civil war to establish a new home in Jerusalem. And then now, as you might remember if you've been around with us the last few weeks, in his old age, David had to flee from Jerusalem when his son Absalom seized his throne. A couple of weeks ago, we heard about how David's army defeated Absalom's larger army, And so now David is coming back to Jerusalem to retake his throne. But as he's going there, and then once he gets there, he finds a real mixed bag, a lot like Jesus did uh, on his own entrance into Jerusalem at Palm Sunday. Uh, If you know the story about Jesus and the Gospels, you have people praising him, people who are glad that he's there and genuinely glad that he's there. Uh, There's a lot of people who are just joining uh, in the excitement who will quickly desert Jesus. You have people there who will end up calling for his murder a few days later and you have people who are just openly angry that he's there, openly opposed to him. We see the same thing here. People are responding to David and his coming into Jerusalem, his coming back to his throne. They respond in all kinds of ways, sometimes positively, sometimes openly, very negatively, but a lot of the time they respond pretty ambiguously. Even David himself comes across as a real mixed bag in these stories. Uh, But we've gotten used to that in the story of Samuel, as David has aged, as his kingdom has declined. And so part of the point of the passage is to show us, once again, that David is not the king that our world needs. Uh, We see many of his failures, or at least many of his weaknesses, all over again. Uh, And so we are seeing, by contrast, what makes Jesus such a great king for us and for our world. David's the high-water mark of the kings in Israel. But another point of the passage is to help us see that God's kingdom in this world is filled with all kinds of people and that it evokes all kinds of responses. And that that's true even now that Jesus has been installed as God's king. That is still the case today that people respond to God's king in all kinds of ways and even that there are all kinds of people within God's kingdom, within the church. And so as you see how Jesus is superior to David we should respond rightly to him. We should respond with genuine loyalty and love, just like some of the people, but not all of them do, in these stories that we're hearing about today. Uh, The first thing you see in these stories is that King David returns to simmering division. He returns to simmering division. That's in verses 8 to 15 of chapter 19. Uh, In chapter 19, verse 9, You hear about how the ten northern tribes of Israel, uh, those tribes get called Israel, and then uh, the southern tribes mainly get referred to just by Judah. You hear about how these ten northern tribes are having this argument about how they should make peace with David now that Absalom, whom they had heartily supported, now that Absalom has been defeated. They are worried about David coming back to the throne and taking vengeance on them. And so in verse 10, they say, we need to come up with a plan to be the first to roll out the red carpet for David once he gets here so that we can get into his good graces and show him uh, that he doesn't need to take revenge on us. David hears about that. And then in verse 11, he goes back to his own tribe, to Judah in the south. And he says, what's going on here, guys? Remember that Absalom's rebellion began in David's own tribe. It began in Judah. Uh, David's own tribe had lots of people in it that supported Absalom against David. And so he turns to them after hearing that the other tribes are looking for ways to bring him back. And he says, what's going on? Why are you dragging your feet on restoring me to my throne? Uh, these other tribes are stumbling over themselves to welcome me. Uh, but from you guys, it's just crickets. And so he says, why should you be the last ones? You should be the first ones to welcome me. You are my family members. But then David does something pretty shocking in verse 13, he turns to this guy named Amasa. There's going to be a lot of names today, so we've got to really pay attention. He turns to this guy, Amasa, who you might remember uh, is from David's own tribe, Judah, and he was the general of Absalom's army. He's the defeated general of Absalom's army. David turns to this guy, and he makes him the general of his own army. He replaces the victorious general, Joab. Uh, This would be something like if after the war, Abraham Lincoln had fired Ulysses S. Grant and appointed Robert E. Lee to head up the army of the Union. This is a shocking thing that David does this. Uh, David apparently does it to assuage any fear on the part of his own tribesmen that he's looking out to get revenge on them for the way that they had turned on him. You hear in verse 14 that by doing this, he sways all the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man. One man. So they finally concede that he is for peace, that he's not going to come and get them. And so they then are are at their ease to welcome him back to Jerusalem. But it raises a question for us. Is David wise to do this to the enemy general? Uh, Not just to show him mercy, but to elevate him to the highest rank he can? I'm not sure. Maybe. This might be a wise thing to do. Uh, there's maybe an echo here of how David has typically been very merciful and patient towards his enemies throughout his life. We saw that, of course, in the way that he treated King Saul. Saul was always trying to kill David, and David repeatedly shows Saul mercy. David repeatedly lets Saul go when he has the chance to kill him. And so with that, it's maybe an echo or maybe it's a reminder of how God's true king, Jesus, uh, comes extending mercy and peace to his enemies, eventually even going as far as to die for them. What David is doing here might be an echo of that. It might be something good where we say, oh, wow, here is somebody who's magnanimous. He's merciful to his enemies, just like Jesus is. But I'm not so sure. At the same time, uh, you're going to see throughout much of the passage, there's real ambiguity here. Later on, this general, Amasa, is going to fail to obey David. And it's not clear if he does it on purpose or if it's just an accident. But whatever his reason for not obeying David in an important uh, campaign, it nearly cost David uh, very dearly in yet another rebellion that we're going to hear about. But I think what's going on here is probably an element of realpolitik. Uh, David is playing the pragmatic card here. He is up against the wall. He needs to make allies very quickly in order to get back to the throne and to stay on top of it. You see that David, uh, like we've seen already throughout much of his later life, is not fully in the driver's seat. He has to be careful about which hills he's going to die on because he's in a terrible situation. Much of his terrible situation, we know, is because of his own sin that he has committed against Bathsheba. Human government, human institutions, human relationships can be a huge mess in a sinful and broken world. You see David's political pragmatism even more clearly in the next couple of little stories. Uh, He returns not only to this simmering division between the tribes, but also to troubling ambiguity. Troubling ambiguity. In verse 16, we have an old character pop up again. This guy named Shimei. Shimei is the one when David was leaving Jerusalem, going up the Mount of Olives, when David was fleeing from his son Absalom, Shimei was the one who was throwing rocks at him, throwing mud on him, calling him names, saying that he was under God's curse because he was an evil man. So that guy Shimei now suddenly pops up again when David is coming back. Now that the shoe is on the other foot, now that David is ascending back to the throne instead of running away from it, you hear that Shimei rushes to be the first one to welcome David. Uh, we also hear, somewhat ominously, that he has a thousand men with him uh, from Saul's tribe, David's old enemy Saul. He has a thousand men of that tribe with him, uh, and he's even got this guy Ziba. Uh, Ziba is another old character, and we hear that Ziba's whole entourage and whole family is there with him. Ziba, I know this is a lot of strange names and people. Just try, Ziba is the guy uh, who was earlier the servant of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth has a hard name to say. He is Saul's grandson. He's crippled in his feet. He can't walk. David showed Mephibosheth a lot of mercy and welcomed Mephibosheth into his court. Ziba was his servant. You might remember when David was fleeing from Jerusalem, Ziba popped up with all kinds of provisions for David uh, to kind of give off the impression that he cared about David but was not actually interested in really truly helping him. And David very quickly handed over all of Mephibosheth's property to him because Ziba had lied to him and said, oh, Mephibosheth is making plans uh, to turn against you. Uh, We saw back then, this was a few weeks ago, that Ziba was in it for himself. He was greedily exploiting this chaotic situation for his own benefit. And so you get these two shady characters who pop up again now that David is returning. Ziba goes with Shimei, uh, with all of their friends, all of their cronies, and they stumble over themselves to welcome David back, to give the impression that they are clearly on his side. In verse 18, you hear Shimei give this overflowing, elaborate apology, but you get the sense as you read it that Shimei is a snake, that he does not really mean what he's saying. He wants David to just let bygones be bygones, to just move on, to just forget what he had done to him, uh, to just you know, show, him, show me some mercy, just let me go, this is all going to be fine. These men are both evil. They both deserve David's wrath, but he does not punish them. David's lieutenant Abishai asks if he can go slice off Shimei's head since he's cursed God's king, which was forbidden under penalty of death under the Mosaic law, but David stops him and shows mercy to him instead. That's in verse 22. And so once again, we've seen episodes like this in David's life before, where he extends love and mercy toward his enemies, uh, most especially King Saul and his family. We saw how that was a picture of God's forgiving love for his enemies. And that that's exemplified most of all in Jesus dying on the cross for his enemies. And so it's possible that the mercy that David is showing here is yet another example of that. But once again, given the wider context, I think it's probably more a picture of David making a pragmatic decision to not give these men what they deserve because he has little choice to do otherwise. They are standing there with these impressive allies behind them. David cannot afford to alienate these elements of his kingdom when things are so fragile for him. In a sinful world, where we know and we understand so little, there are bound to be times in our own relationships where just because you can do something does not mean that you should do something. Uh, That's true whether you are talking about the office or parenting or church discipline. Just because you can do something does not mean you should do something. It may not be wise. It is not necessarily wrong to shrewdly pick your battles But the need to sometimes pick your battles in a bad situation, the need that we even have to do that is an emphasis. It underscores that we are basically weak and unable to see everything and to know everything as perfectly as God does. And so part of the point here is to show us that David and his kingdom are fragile. That we ultimately need God to execute judgment on this world. God has already begun to do that in Jesus, who is God in human, kingly flesh. Uh, So many of the basic elements and assumptions of our legal and judicial system, like that we assume that somebody is innocent and that they have to be proven to be guilty. You don't prove that someone's innocent in our legal system. You prove that they're guilty. And you can only prove that they're guilty if you are absolutely sure that they are guilty. You can't just say, well... We're pretty sure he's kind of guilty. Nope, you need to treat him as innocent. A lot of the reason that we have that in our legal system is because of this basic reality that people acknowledge or they should acknowledge that we don't know everything and we can't know everything. And it is better to let a guilty person go free than to punish an innocent person. We need to trust in God to be the judge over evil. When people, if you read history and you know history, When people think that we can get justice on this earth, that we can bring it about, that we can, through our institutions and our education, we can bring perfect justice on this earth, you are bound to find lots and lots and lots of blood flowing through the streets very soon after that. That is the recipe for disaster in human history, the human arrogant assumption that we can bring perfect justice in this world. Only God can do that. Not even David could do it. We need God to execute judgment only Jesus can do it. Jesus has begun to do it. He will do it perfectly when he returns a second time. You've seen how on his return, God's king faces simmering division and troubling ambiguity. Those are both pretty grim. But now in verse 24, we get something that's actually kind of encouraging. It should be really encouraging. You find that David also meets earnest loyalty. There are people there who love David, who are glad that he's there, and they really mean it. We hear again about Mephibosheth. Remember, this is Saul's disabled grandson. David had shown him such abundant kindness, even though Mephibosheth didn't need it. He comes out to meet David, uh, but we hear in the story, you should read it if you haven't already, you hear that Mephibosheth has really let himself go. He hasn't been cutting his hair, he hasn't been shaving, he hasn't been bathing, he hasn't been taking care of his feet. Uh, He's kind of disgusting and gross. Apparently, this is a sign of mourning that Mephibosheth has been putting on, it's a sign of grief over David's exile. Uh, This disabled man, all he could do to show his loyalty to David uh, was this strange act of defiance against Absalom, uh, living in mourning and in grief. Mephibosheth has been loyal to David this whole time. David asks him, why didn't you come with me? Uh, I heard that you were turning against me when I was leaving. And Mephibosheth says, well, it was because Ziba, my servant, was lying to you. He was deceiving me. But Mephibosheth is so glad to see his friend and to see his benefactor David Uh, He just says, you know, just do whatever you want. I don't really care. I don't care what you give me. I don't care what you take from me. Uh, I was as good as dead, he says to David. I was as good as dead, me and my family, before you showed me mercy because we were related to Saul and we deserved your judgment. I'm just so grateful that you're here. I know that I don't deserve anything from you. Uh, Verse 29, pretty oddly David responds to this beautiful, heartfelt pledge of loyalty. David responds to it very harshly. David cuts him off. He interrupts him. Uh, He says there in verse 29, Why are you speaking anymore about these issues? I've decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And so again, this helps us to see that David is acting more from expedience than from true justice Ziba does not deserve any of the land. He bilked it out of Mephibosheth. But David, perhaps, probably, pragmatically, there's Ziba standing right there with all of his friends, with all of their weapons. David pragmatically says, well, he can just keep half of it. Uh, No perfect justice on this side of the coming of God's true and final king. David is walking on eggshells all around him. But in verse 30, uh, somewhat strangely and interestingly, Mephibosheth doesn't really care. Unlike Ziba, who was in it for himself and for the wealth and for the status, Mephibosheth just says, yeah, that's okay, I don't really care. He can have it all. He can have all of my land. All I care about is that you're here safely. I'm just so glad to have you. Mephibosheth loves David, regardless of what he gets out of David. It's a beautiful little picture of sincere loyalty to God's king. It's a beautiful little picture of the kind of loyalty that we should have to Jesus. So many of us treat Jesus or treat God like he's a genie in a bottle, like you give me what I want and then I'll do stuff for you, or I'll do this for you, I'll come to church and I'll pray and I'll raise my kids the right way in order to get you to bless me and help me and make things nice for me and my job. Uh, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth just says, I don't care. You don't have to give me anything. I'm just glad to have you. I'm just loyal to you. It doesn't matter to me. In verse 31, you get another picture of earnest loyalty. This guy, Barzillai, if you uh, really remember well, if you have a great memory, we've actually heard of this guy already. Barzillai was one of the three guys who had generously provided for David's needs when he was fleeing from Absalom. And we're told here uh, that he pops up again as David is heading back to Jerusalem. We're told that Barzillai is very old. The author makes a big deal out of how old he is. He says he's really, really old. He's 80 years old, uh, which for back then was extremely old. David says, oh, hey, Barzilai, how are you doing? It's great to see you again. Why don't you come back with me? I really appreciate all the help you gave me. Come with me to Jerusalem. It'd be great to have you around. Uh, but Barzilai says to him, no, he basically says, I'm a real geezer now. Uh, I don't want to do that. Uh, I mean, you should read it later. He says, you know, my mind isn't too sharp. He says, I can't really taste food anyways. Uh, I can't hear music anymore. Uh, I don't really find young men and young women that interesting or that exciting anymore. Uh, I'm just going to be a drag to you. I'm going to burden you. Uh, I don't want to come. I just want to stay here and live in my little village where my mom and dad died, and I'm just going to live out the rest of my days here. But take my son instead. My son will go with you, and he can help you out. David's happy with that. It's a funny little story, but it's a reminder to us that God uses all kinds of people in his kingdom. Uh, This man's greatest work... For God's kingdom, the highlight of his life did not happen until he was 80 years old. We live in a society that is profoundly dismissive of the elderly. But you see here how God's kingdom moves forward through all kinds of people that the world is quick to set aside. The world is quick to look over. Uh, We have disabled Mephibosheths carrying out these wonderful parts of God's plan. You have senile barzilis carrying out what parts of God's plan for the world. And so don't ever think that God can't use you. Uh, Don't ever think that your best days for God's work and God's kingdom are behind you. Maybe you are a Barzillai. Maybe in our world with our life expectancies, you will have to live to 100 to do your greatest work for God and for his kingdom. David has returned to a real mixed bag of people and attitudes and responses but it's about to get a lot worse. In verse 41, you see how this division that we heard about simmering at the beginning of chapter 19 is now boiling over into an outright rebellion. At the end of chapter 19, uh, the tribes of Israel, the northern tribes, and then the tribe of Judah in the south, they're having what seems to be a very childish argument uh, about who's more loyal to David about who deserves what, about who worked harder, about who gets to be at the front of the homecoming parade. And so in chapter 20, uh, all of this bickering, this childish bickering back and forth and these name callings and these insults, it inspires uh, a guy named Shimei. He's described as a worthless man. It inspires this man named, not Shimei, Sheba. Sorry, even I'm getting confused. It inspires a worthless man named Sheba to start an outright rebellion Against David. He's disgruntled about David. He's disgruntled about how David's tribe of Judah had treated his own tribes up in Israel. Uh, He and those like him, if you read the story, they really were being mistreated. Uh, They were being spoken to very harshly. Uh, They were being dismissed as morons. Uh, He's been mistreated by them. And so he says forget this. We have no portion in David. He says, everybody to your own tents. Everybody do your own thing. Everybody find your own king. Uh, You could say that Sheba is calling everybody to live my truth. Sheba is saying to everybody, we are being oppressed. We're being wronged. We're out of here. He's deconstructing his faith in David with real grievances to point to. This is not out of nowhere. There are real grievances here. There are real wrongs that have been committed. But Sheba takes those real grievances and he runs with it into total rebellion against God's king. And very sadly, we see this kind of thing in the church today. Churches do not just contain frauds or grifters like Ziba and Shimei, although they do contain frauds and grifters. They do not just contain people who are only in it for the benefits that it brings them uh, instead of because of they love the Lord. It doesn't just, the church doesn't just contain people who pretend to be sorry, uh, people who blame everybody else when they've been caught in sin. They also contain people like Sheba, people who perhaps having been genuinely wronged, genuinely sinned against by pastors and by churches, people who launch from that into an open bucking of the authority of God's word as it's truly being taught by pastors and elders. And then they go around spreading lies, and spreading discontentment within the church. The New Testament constantly warns about people like this. Uh, Paul says in one of his letters that church leaders should take divisive people so seriously that they put the church discipline process on a fast track. Divisive people get a shorter church discipline uh, process. It's quicker to excommunicate them because divisiveness is so destructive to the life of God's church. And so Sheba is starting one more rebellion against David. Here's yet another rebellion against God's king. But in verse 3, you hear that David's first act, once he returns to Jerusalem to yet another rebellion, his first act is to make sure that the concubines, whom Absalom had violated, are provided for. But David also, we're told, shuts them up in total isolation for the rest of their lives. It shows us, the uglier side of David. It shows us the injustice of the concubinage system that David never should have adopted in the first place. But after doing that, David calls up his new general, Amasa. He orders him to put down this new rebellion by Sheba. And for some reason, Amasa delays to do what David wants. And so David has to turn and appoint Joab's brother, Abishai, as his new general. He's burning through leaders. But throughout the whole episode in chapter 20, Joab, David's old general, Joab once again is in the driver's seat. We've seen this over and over and over again through the story of 2 Samuel. Joab doing things his own way. Joab taking charge. Joab now is the one um, who is going after Sheba, even though David never asked him to do that. Over and over again, we're told that David's army is actually Joab's men. It's constantly described as Joab's army, Joab's men. Joab makes all the decisions including this gruesome and cold-blooded murder of his rival Amasa. Oddly and hauntingly, Joab seems to be loyal to David in a genuine way, but at the same time, Joab is totally out of control. He's loyal to David. He's working for David. If you would have asked him, hey, what are you doing all this for? He'd say, well, I'm doing this to protect David's kingdom. But he's totally unsubmissive to David. He doesn't really ever listen to David. He does things his own way. I suppose he's something like the people that Jesus tells us are going to be there at the final judgment who are going to come to Jesus and they're going to say, Lord, 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 look at all these miracles we did. Look at all the demons we cast out. Look at all the megachurches we built and we did it all for you. And Jesus says, I'm going to turn to those people and I'm going to say, who are you? I don't know who you are. You never obeyed me. Get out of my face. Jesus tells us he's going to tell them. Sheba apparently struggles to find people to join in his rebellion. He ends up way far up in the north. Uh, He gets refuge in a little town up there. And so Joab, this man who would have said, Lord, Lord of David, and yet refused to do whatever he actually said, Joab leads the army up to this little town. They start laying siege to it. But we get this wise townswoman talking everybody off the ledge. She literally offers the head of Sheba. And then we get this gruesome little story about how they chuck the head over the wall and joab's army catches it and they say okay we'll leave you alone and they leave Uh, this gruesome judgment of sheba is a small picture again of god's judgment against those who rebel against his king and then the chapter ends this is the very end of chapter 20 this is really important and this is why i've read these stories and think these stories are generally pretty negative in the way that they're portraying david look at the end of chapter 20 if you have a bible open it ends with a pretty dry summary of how David's kingdom is being administered. It's almost an exact repetition of how Second Samuel chapter 8 ended. Chapter 8 was the total high point of David's kingdom. Everything was going really great for David and for his kingdom at the end of chapter 8. But now at the end of chapter 20, you get almost an exact repetition about who's doing which job in David's kingdom After we've been seeing David fall so far for the last 12 chapters, we've been seeing David wallowing around in his sin and his apathy. And there's now some very prominent differences between the summary we get at the end of chapter 8 and the summary we get at the end of chapter 20. Unlike at the end of chapter 8, we get no statement about David being the king. We don't get any statement about David being in charge of anything. Instead, the first thing we're told is that Joab is in command of, Of the army. We also hear that David now, for the first time, has a bureaucrat in charge of forced labor, slavery. It's an echo of what the evil Pharaoh had done when he enslaved the Israelites. It's a reminder of the prophet Samuel's warning in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's a reminder of how Samuel, remember when Israel came to Samuel and they said, We want a king. We want to have a human king. And Samuel said, You don't want a king. Human kings are really bad. You know what he's going to do? He's going to enslave you. He's going to tax you so much. He's going to take all your stuff. It'll be like you're his slaves. You don't want a king. They said, yeah, we don't care. We want a king. We want him to fight battles for us. David has turned in to the very king that Samuel had warned them about. He's enslaving the people. But worst of all, the greatest glaring difference between these two chapters, the way they dryly summarize who's in charge of what. At the end of chapter 8, we heard that David was administering justice and equity to all the people. But now we don't hear anything about that. There's no justice. There's no equity. You have an old man barely holding on to his kingdom. His kingdom is ending with something of a whimper. It's in a pretty sorry, fragile state. It's being patched together by these pragmatic decisions to keep various factions happy. Even though we have seen... And we are encouraged to see that there are people who are genuinely loyal to him, people who genuinely love him. And so we end with this. Where are you in the way that you are responding to God's king? Are you genuinely loyal to God's true and final king, Jesus? A king who has none of the failures, none of the sins of David? A king whose rule and whose throne are never, ever going to be in real danger, and yet whose kingdom, still for now, is also marked by apparent weakness and fragility. Are you loyal to that king? Are you trusting in him, no matter how much weakness there seems to be on the outside of his kingdom? Are you loyal to him, and do you love him? Let's pray. Jesus, help us to be like those in this story, as weak as they were, who were so glad to see David. Help us to endure through our own lives so that when we die and we stand before you, we'll be glad to be there. We'll be delighted to be in your presence. Help us to be those who live authentically before you and genuinely before you in all of our weakness and our disabilities and our struggles and our, our failures, knowing that you're a good king who does what's best for his people. Keep us from being like all these frauds in this story who pretend, who put up appearances, who act like we really like you, but really we want what we can get out of you. Help us to love you instead. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.